Lord, we do thank you for uh, your word, and we thank you just for the body and the privilege it is to gather together. Uh, Sunday evenings are such a sweet time together to be worshiping you. Um, we thank you, Lord, even as we've just heard for the way you're providing financially for the needs of the church. Um, and now as we have time to look at your word, uh, we just pray that you would help us to understand your word right, and that you would uh, just lay a good foundation in our understanding for reading your word and, and growing Um, I pray that we would uh, understand it better, we'd have a helpful dialogue about this, and that you'd be glorified. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's start very briefly with a little bit of review. So the purpose of Genesis, and we'll come back to this as we get to the end, is to, this is on page, what page was that, page four? Is that right? No, actually, my notes are paginated differently than yours. Anyways, it's at the beginning of the Genesis section. So the purpose of Genesis is to provide the salvation historical backdrop for the Exodus and all that follows. Namely, God's purpose in creation, how man's failure to trust the Lord brought ruin upon creation and threatened God's purpose, and how God has purposed to restore and complete what he began. And then as we jump further into um, the notes, I want to uh, just summarize where we kind of left off at the end of chapter 2, right? We talked through, we got, we talked through the first section, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, and largely focused there on the creation of man. We talked about how You know, the Lord's creating multiple things over those six days, but it's all moving towards the climax of that uh, sixth day. Really, the seventh day is the climax. But the sixth day, which has far more space given to it, and that's where we actually find man made as God's image. We spent some time talking about what that means, right? And if you weren't here, it's in the notes. um, So you can go back and read that. And then we got into chapter 2 and noted how there we see another... Look at creation, but it's zoomed in now from from a different angle looking at the creation of mankind, right? And we get another angle on God's purpose for human beings in creation. And we talk through things like the fact that God created a garden in the midst of the whole earth. God put man there to care for that garden with the purpose of expanding the boundaries so that the blessings of God's relational presence found in the garden would encompass the whole earth. The whole earth would become a place that's covered with the glory of the Lord. Talked about how the role of the tree of life there, right? That's really just symbolizing the, um, all the blessings that attend the divine presence where God dwells, dwelling with him. There's a blessing in that, and there's all kinds of other blessings that flow from that. And the tree of life is just saying it's the tree that um, produces life, because life is found in the presence of God. And then the tree of knowledge we looked at as really representing the search for, I use this technical term, and I'll come back and explain it, but the epistemic autonomy, right? Autonomy in knowing, like epistemology, that We want, when we're pursuing what's represented with that, we want to decide for ourselves what's good and what's right versus what's evil and what's wrong. 
Whereas God has already spoken. God has already said, this is what's good. This is what's bad. And he calls us to trust him and to operate under those instructions within that framework. And the tree of knowledge represented the refusal to do that and to say, no, I want to go on my own. I want to be independent of God, even as functioning as his vice regent, ruling over the earth on his behalf as his image. So that brought us up to the end of chapter two. Let me just summarize here. God's purposes in creation as seen in Genesis 1 and 2. Essentially, it is to fill creation with his image bearers who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf. Is that in there? Is that in your handout? You guys don't see it there? I'm not sure if that's in there. I'll just repeat that again. To fill creation with his image bearers who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf. All right, so that reviews and catches us up to the end of chapter 2. Now are we ready to start into chapter 3? All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 3. So Genesis chapter 3 is still a part of that second section that goes from chapter 2 verse 4 through the end of chapter 4, but we're shifting a bit within that section, and now it's going to begin narrating man's disobedience, actually seeing that the fruit of that tree of knowledge looks good to them, and taking of it and eating of it. And the rest of this section going through chapter 4 is going to look at the consequences of that. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, basically that whole event is narrated. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with that, but essentially the fruit that was forbidden them, uh, the serpent comes along and tempts Eve and says, no, I think you really do want this. And Eve goes ahead and takes while her husband is there with her. And then he eats as well. And so it appears as though we have the total fail in terms of doing what God called. Man is to guard and keep the garden and he's failed to do that this this creature coming in to subvert god's word has been allowed to be there and man's actually begun to listen not ruling over creation but actually submitting to the serpent and to make it even worse woman who's been created as man's helper to help him in doing that has the 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 arrangement there has been taken out of sorts and she's actually kind of become independent and gone out and listened to the serpent and the man stood by and done nothing while he's just watched her be deceived and then he's followed her actually into that deception and so we see the actual event of the the fall the transgression narrated in verses one through seven and then in verses eight through 19 We're going to see that God confronts man, pronounces judgment, but also issues a promise and offers hope. So first, 
Let's look at verse 14, verses 14 and 15. He's going to go through systematically with these punishments. First to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. So first let me read verses 14 and 15 for us. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the serpent is cursed and the curse is pronounced in the first half of verse 14 and then elaborated in the second half of verse 14 and verse 15. So for one thing, just note that phrase. Um, Cursed are you. That's going to come up multiple times as we continue on through Genesis. But the first time that's spoken is with regard to the serpent. Now, what's being cursed here? The serpent's an interesting figure, isn't it? Because in many ways, it it seems to represent a species of God's creation, and yet there's all kinds of indications it's more than just a species of God's creation. Something's kind of embodying this serpent. And quite frankly, the text just doesn't tell us how, how we sort all of this out. But it's pretty clear that what's going on here is more than just one species of God's creation that's gone rogue, but that there's actually something else that's sort of manifesting itself in the, in the form of this serpent. And I think in terms of Genesis 3, the best way to summarize it is that the serpent represents an evil God-opposing element now in creation. An evil God-opposing element now in creation. Certainly, later revelation would tell us this is Satan, but quite frankly, Satan just means adversary. It's one who opposes, one who's uh, opposing. So, uh, to even just call it here, an evil God-opposing element now in creation, I think, captures pretty much all of that. Other than, as time goes on, we begin to see it more so personified. So what's going on here with this curse on the serpent? Well, basically we see enmity in three relationships. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Secondly, oh, that's the first one, between the serpent and the woman. Secondly, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now the seed of the serpent here seems to refer in subsequent scripture to those humans who follow the behavior of the serpent in this chapter, opposing God's purposes and those who are seeking to align themselves with God's purposes. So seed of the serpent would be those who oppose God's purposes and anyone who aligns themselves with God's purposes. Is that making sense? So enmity between, first, the serpent and the woman. Secondly, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then finally, between the seed of the woman and the serpent. So, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Then he, that is her seed, shall bruise you on the head, and you, that is the serpent, shall bruise him, the seed of the woman, on the heel. So, who is this seed of the woman? On the one hand, this word, and actually seed, that translation is helpful because it has the same kind of grammatical function. The word is what we call a collective singular, like seed, like um, fish, 
meaning we usually don't represent it, don't write it in the plural. I know, I think the King James speaks of fishes, right? But generally, we speak of a singular fish, or we speak of fish in the singular, even if you catch a whole lot of fish, right? Here are 13 fish, or one fish. doesn't make a difference. We call it a singular fish. But there are other words we can use to describe it that will take a plural or a singular based upon what meaning we intend. So now let's use a demonstrative pronoun. If I say, this fish, that works. But now if it's plural, what do I have to say? These fish. So suddenly now, whatever mystery and ambiguity might have been there is is removed, right? And the same is actually true in Hebrew. There are certain other words, and pronouns are one of the clearest ones that will follow the number that's in the author's mind. And that seems to pretty consistently work. So what's interesting here is that the pronouns here are singular. So I think we have good reason on a grammatical basis to believe that while there are promises about a multitude of seed, as we're going to see, multitude of descendants, that this text is looking to an individual offspring of the woman an individual offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Is that clear? So yes, it could be ambiguous. Some people have taken it to be ambiguous, but I think grammatically it's best to understand it to be a singular offspring of the woman. Go ahead. You say that was called collective singular? Collective singular. That's what we call any word that's always going to be singular, even if it refers to a group. So what's the significance of this conflict between the serpent and the woman? Well, we need to read the story as it would have been read by the original readers and not impose a lens of later scripture. What we see here is that a descendant of the woman, though receiving a non-mortal wound, notice what it says. Um, uh, And you, the serpent, shall bruise him, the seed of the woman, on the heel, right? So calling that a non-mortal wound. So although that's going to happen, there's going to be a non-mortal wound from the serpent, the seed of the woman will deal a mortal blow to the serpent, right? He will crush your head. Do you guys see the difference there? So there's a conflict, both inflicting wounds. The difference is the seed of the woman's ultimately going to triumph over the serpent because it's the seed of the woman who deals the mortal blow. And... In terms of what's in view here, this marks the end of the forces that oppose God's purposes and people and opens the way for God to consummate his plan for creation. Did you guys get that? I'll repeat that again. What's in view here, in terms of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, is marking the end of the forces that oppose God's purposes and people, God's purposes and people, and opens the way for God to consummate his plan for creation. You guys track with me? Does that make sense? I know this this whole seed of the woman, seed of the serpent thing can sometimes seem a bit enigmatic. And I don't know if it's necessarily intended to seem enigmatic. Um, So I'm trying to kind of boil down to what's the core thing going on here. So here, embedded in a curse on the serpent is hope for humanity tied to a particular descendant of the woman. You guys seeing that? Hope for humanity 
connected to a particular offspring descendant of the woman. So that's all we've got here so far. Obviously, later scripture expands this, gives more detail. But that's all we've got so far. Next, let's go on to verse 16 where we see the woman's punishment. And then we'll go to the man's punishment. So verse 16, first of all, notice there is no cursed are you here for the woman, right? The woman isn't cursed, and actually neither is the man. That's significant. But the punishment consists of two parts in verse 16. First of all, there's difficulty in conception in childbirth. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So in the first half, we have this difficulty in conception in childbirth. Now, many translations basically made those, make those two lines sound like they're purely synonymous. So here's what my translation says. Um, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. But actually, the first line uses a word that's consistently used for conception. And the second one uses a word that's consistently used for childbirth. These two words are often paired. So-and-so conceived and gave birth. And they clearly refer to the two different, the terminal ends of the pregnancy, right? And so that's what's in view here. And this fits with how Hebrew parallelism usually works. Even where it seems like you have synonymous parallelism, it's almost always the case that the second line goes beyond the first one in some way. And often in a temporal way. It's, it's taking us a bit further. So I think that's what we've got going on here. We've got first, conception will become difficult, and then childbirth will become difficult. And then the second half, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, refers to difficulty in the marital relationship. Now, notice how these relate to God's purposes in creation. So God blessed man in 128, humanity, and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, that's going to be stymied in that it's going to be difficult for a woman to conceive. And then furthermore, childbirth is going to be difficult. And part of God's creation purpose is that she would function as a helper to man in fulfilling his commission. And now that helper role is going to be complicated because of difficulty within the marital relationship. So I want you to see there what what that consists of and the way it directly relates, and we could say even directly threatens God's purpose in creation. This punishment does. And next we'll see a very similar theme as we move on to the man's punishment in verses 17 through 19. Let me read that for us. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So remember, I told you to pay attention to that. This cursed are you, cursed is the ground. But notice here, while we have the same phrase and that's significant, it's not man who's cursed, right? It's the ground that's cursed. Now, that's tied up with the punishment on man. 
but nonetheless, it's not man that's cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. And what's the significance of that? In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So essentially, the punishment for man consists in difficulty cultivating the ground. And again, this directly corresponds, could say opposes, threatens the task given to man. He had in 128, Genesis 128, the task of subduing and ruling creation. And then we saw in chapter 2, verse 15, he had the task of cultivating and keeping the garden. Suddenly now, all of this is affected and opposed by the consequences for sin. So let me just summarize what we've seen in these punishments. This disobedience between man and woman, eating of the tree of knowledge, rooted in a a search for autonomy to be independent of God's judgment has massive consequences. Everything fallen about our world as we know it now stems from this, right? Everything that's wrong with the world stems from that unwillingness to submit ourselves to God's decree, to God's judgment. And we can learn from this that there's nothing more foundational and essential to relating rightly to God than trusting him. There's nothing more foundational, essential to relating rightly to God than trusting him. Although these consequences of failure to trust really do threaten God's purpose for creation and will continue to create very significant problems until the serpent is destroyed, Grace, God's grace is going to shine through as he persists in pursuing his purposes. He doesn't give up on his purposes in creation, but he continues to pursue them. And I think just kind of applicationally and parenthetically, it's helpful to note that everyone sees these problems, right? Who knows how many billions of dollars each year, and I'm not criticizing it, but how many billions of dollars each year are poured through aid organizations to deal with hunger, right? Again, I'm not criticizing that, but like the, the, the punishment on man is a reality that's recognized every day. Um, and then just all, all the problems created here, we could just list them, but they all go back to this. And what's unique about us as Christians isn't that we alone recognize these problems, but that with the guidance of Scripture, we alone can actually identify the fundamental problem, right? The fundamental problem is estrangement from God, enmity with God because of rebellion against him. And so the fundamental solution is reconciliation to God, right? That's the fundamental solution. And while there is a common grace benefit in trying to, should we say, ameliorate the reality, the effects of those punishments, there will never be solutions apart from man being reconciled back to God. And God will address all of these things, but through reconciliation. It's helpful to recognize that while all kinds of the UN and all kinds of other organizations are trying to address these types of problems, governments, but really it's, it's Christians who have the ultimate solution in the gospel which can reconcile God to man. And then continuing here, notice in chapter 3 as we get past verse 19, 
we see God's grace coming through here. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Eve is a name related to life, as you can see from what it says, because she was the mother of all living. And yet that's curious because what's the consequence for eating from the tree of knowledge? Death. So there's hope here in God's grace, but not merely a blind, baseless hope, because God just said that the hope for mankind is going to come through a seed of the woman. So she's obviously going to live long enough to give birth, and she's actually going to give birth to another generation. So there's hope beyond this. And he is hoping in that and seeing that, no, maybe there is a possibility for life and naming his wife accordingly. And then verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So it was awareness of and shame about their nakedness that was really the first evidence that something had gone awry after they ate of the fruit. That was the first thing we see And God graciously addresses that reality they brought about for themselves. They brought about that problem. They brought about that shame. And God addresses it. He covers their shame for them. So in these two verses, we just see God's grace. Even though there's punishment, he doesn't just, he's not just done with them, leaving them on their own. He's moving in their direction, providing grace towards them, even as he In these punishments, we can see in the the curse on the serpent already hope for a final solution. And then finally, in verses 22 through 24, we see that man is evicted from the garden. Let me use a different E word. Man is exiled from the garden. And it's, that's an intentionally chosen word because there's another Adam who is later going to be in another garden-type place, and because of disobedience, going to be expelled, going to be exiled. That's helpful to see in the storyline. But he's exiled. And the death that comes upon man and woman for their disobedience becomes a reality in their expulsion from the garden, and specifically from the relational presence of God, which is the source of life. So in the garden, in God's relational presence, they continue to basically receive life. But now being removed from the source of life, death sets in. Death begins. And now notice how this exile, like the punishments on man and woman in 3.16 through 19, also directly opposes God's purpose for man. Whereas man was to expand the boundaries of the garden until it encompassed the whole earth, and thereby mediate the blessings of God's relational presence found in the garden to the whole world, man is now himself excluded from that presence and its blessings, and without them himself, and unable to mediate them to the rest of creation. You guys see how that expulsion from the garden just really is, a, is another nail in the coffin to how God's going to bring about his purposes in creation. All right, I'm going to try to summarize what we've seen so far in chapters 2 and 3. Before I do, I want to check in. How are we doing? Am I coming out of the gates here too quickly trying to make the best use of the time? You guys seem a little bit less engaged than last week. Are you guys track with me? Okay. Do we have any questions? 
Okay. I'd prefer to take some time to back up and clarify than forge on ahead. Yes, go ahead, Sarah. Yeah. Um, it was just the note about a man being removed from the garden and now not able to mediate God's blessing. Is that right? Yeah, so here's what I said. Notice how this exile, like the punishments on man and woman, directly opposes God's purpose for man. Whereas man was to expand the boundaries of the garden until it encompassed the whole earth and thereby mediate the blessings of God's relational presence found in the garden to the whole earth. You aren't trying to write that all down, are you? (laughs) So you're over there writing, thinking, this is not going to (laughs) work. Okay, let me continue. Um, And thereby mediate the blessings of God's relational presence found in the garden to the whole earth. Man is himself now excluded from that presence and its blessings. Without them himself much less able to mediate them to the rest of creation. All right, now, my attempt to summarize what's happened in chapters 2 and 3. This section shows that man was enjoying the blessings of the divine presence, the divine relational presence, and all of the blessings that attend that, God's presence, right? Symbolized by the tree of life. While he was working to extend the garden to cover the whole earth. He simply needed to continue to embrace his creatureliness and remain dependent on the Lord, especially in the realm of knowledge, trusting God to discern rightly, rather than insisting on confirming what is true for himself, a sort of autonomy of knowledge or judgment, because he chose the latter, confirming for himself, deciding what's right for himself, He was removed from the enjoyment of the divine relational presence and all the blessings that attended it, exiled from the garden and forbidden access to the tree of life. All right. You guys track with me? Do we have any questions before we move into chapter four and see some of the some more consequences from this decision to eat of the tree of knowledge? Yes. That's a good question. So notice in the conflict, it's actually not the seed of the serpent that's in conflict with the seed of the woman, primarily. At the end there, kind of the climax of that section, it's the serpent and the seed of the woman that are in conflict. So it is sort of a singular. But there is still also a section in there that mentions the seed of the serpent being in conflict with the seed of the woman. I turn around, I'm conscious of time, because this could easily get us off track. But let's take just a moment. Can you see from there? Okay. So serpent and seed of serpent. All right. Just understand that because it's under serpent, that means the seed of the serpent. And then we've got woman and her seed. Uh, Let's use red. Red seems like a better color for conflict. (laughs) So we've got conflict between the serpent and the woman first, right? 
Then we've got conflict also between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Is that right? Those are what's mentioned first. But then what's really focused on at the end, sort of the climax of all of this, is the conflict between the seed, or the serpent itself and the seed of the woman. Do you guys see that? So I do think what we should also be expecting, at the very least from this, is that there will be those who seem to follow in the footsteps of the serpent and oppose the seed of the woman. And I think for that reason, it's not surprising that we find Jesus in the Gospels, remember I was supposed to stand here, saying things like, you are of your father the devil to the Pharisees who are opposing him. Right? And he was a murderer from the beginning, and we won't be surprised to find out in just a moment we get to chapter 4, that the words uttered to Cain are, cursed are you. The same words uttered to the serpent, I think, indicating that Cain is also a seed of the serpent. Does that make sense? I think it's probably broader, but at the very least, we're going to find not only Satan, but also those who kind of follow in his footsteps, opposing the seed of the woman. Okay. Chapter 4. We're still in the second section. So, I'm going to try to move very quickly through this. You guys are hopefully familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. But go down to verse 11, where you see... Actually, go up to verses 1 and 2 first. Now, the woman had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived. This may not seem surprising, unless you know that the word Eve occurs in the book of Genesis twice. Once, in chapter 3, where Adam names his wife Eve, because she'll become the mother of all living, and here, every other time, she's simply called the woman. So here, right when... (laughs) Right when she's conceiving, giving birth to a living child, her name is invoked again. I think Moses is doing that to help us make the connections. So she gives birth to two children. You're aware Cain kills Abel. Verse 11, the Lord comes to Cain and says, Now you are cursed, or cursed are you, from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now... Um, I want you to notice that beginning in verse 17, we have a genealogy going from Cain all the way down to this figure, this man called Lamech. And interestingly, we find that Lamech takes for himself two wives. This is the first time we find this. And at a simple reading of Genesis 2, that seems to be strange, right? doesn't seem like polygamy was God's design. So already we're kind of tipped off that this figure who comes kind of at the end of Cain's descendants, something's wrong here. But notice what he says. Verse 23, chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So, this reality of murder in Cain is only magnified as you go seven generations into Cain's lineage and come to this Lamech figure. So, we're just seeing evil multiplying in the world generally. Consequence of the fall, 
But in chapter 5, we're going to see some more connections. But right now, let's finish this section. Then finally, in verses 25 and 26, keep in mind where we're left. We're left with, we had Abel, who was murdered by Cain, who's the seed of the serpent, and he's cursed. And we get to his descendants coming out to Lamech, who's much worse than Cain. So where is the hope for the seed of the woman? Here it comes at the end of chapter 4. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring or seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So quite in contrast to the line of the Cainites, right? Now there's actually, people seem to be worshiping the Lord. All right, continue on into chapter 5. So if you're thinking through our outline of the sections, 5.1 through 6.8 is another section. And I am going to go through this very quickly. But it's a genealogy. It's a different kind of genealogy, though, than what we're going to see elsewhere. Really briefly, track with me in understanding two types of genealogies. Linear genealogies and segmented genealogies. Linear genealogies ignore siblings and focus on moving through the generations. So you have a father goes to a son. This gets confusing. Who becomes a father of another one, right? And there's no siblings. Just one member of each generation is recognized. Linear. Segmented would be more like a family tree, right? Where you have a person here, and then it branches out. Let's say they have three kids, and you have a person here, person here, person here, and then this one branches out again. Does that make sense? That's a segmented genealogy. And the difference between them is significant because which one indicates what we're doing with the figure? In chapter 5, we have a linear genealogy. Linear genealogies are usually used to take us from one significant figure in the storyline to another significant figure. Segmented genealogies are usually used in the narrative to kind of identify someone as moving off the scene of significance, fizzling out, we might say, in terms of relevance to the narrative. So chapter 5 is a 10-member genealogy. We're going to see two 10-member genealogies, and this one takes us from Adam to Noah. And look at verse 28, chapter 5. And notice this line is going through Seth, right? So this is a Sethite genealogy. We just saw a Cainite genealogy. At the end, a ninth member of this uh, Sethite genealogy, verse 28, is another Lamech, right? Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name, his son's name, Noah. Keep in mind, Noah in Hebrew is related to the word for rest. This one, he says, will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So no one else in this genealogy speaks. But in chapter 4, the Canaanite genealogy termites ter- terminates, not termites, terminates, that's the curse on the ground. It terminates with a Lamech who speaks. Chapter 5, the genealogy terminates with a Lamech 
who speaks, but the content of their character, the significance of the genealogy is vastly different. The Cainite shows that he's become far more wicked, right? The Sethite, hoping in God's promise for a seed of the woman who will reverse the curse with that very clear allusion to 317, the curse on the ground. Is that making sense? So we're seeing Lamech hoping maybe this son is the one who will give us rest from the toil. And so he names them rest, essentially. All right. With that, let's move on to the next section, which now we've moved quickly from Adam, which was sort of an expanded narrative, quickly through this genealogy now to Noah, and now we're going to get a bit of a longer narrative from 6-8, sorry, 6-9, through the end of chapter 9. And this is the flood story. And what I want you to see, I'm going to have to make this brief, but what I want you to see here is that essentially God decreates and recreates, and Adam is something like a new, sorry, Noah is something like a new Adam figure. So I have put there in your notes for you to look at the sort of evidence comparing what we see in the flood with what we see in creation and how as the waters come over the earth, we're sort of rolling back what creation did, right? God created the earth, waters covered the whole earth, it was formless and void. Then God separates the dry land from the water and then things can begin to grow. He can put creatures and living things on the earth. But now he moves the waters back and that destroys all, all creatures, right? Now there's nothing else living. So I'll let you look at the notes there to kind of work through the evidence there. But that takes us up to the end of chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, we're back to like a Genesis 1-2 situation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where there's earth, but it's basically decreated. And then God basically begins a process of recreation again. He sends a wind across the waters and he separates the dry land from uh, the waters. Dry land again emerges. And as the water abates and dry land appears, vegetation begins to, begins to grow again. Then we see in chapter 8, verse 17, that God blesses the animals, commanding them to be fruitful and multiply, just like he did in chapter 1 of Genesis. Then we see that God blesses Noah and his family in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 and charges them to reproduce and to rule, just like he did to Adam in chapter 1. And then also, at the end of chapter 1, God provides food for humanity. And he does as well here in chapter 9. The only difference is that previously it was only vegetation that's given to man for food. Now also, animals are permitted to him. But nonetheless, we have all these parallels suggesting a bit of a recreation after uh, the flood. So in many ways, Noah's a new Adam. The earth's been recreated. Noah, like Adam, is to become the father of the whole human race. And Noah receives the same essential blessing commission. Now, that might sound super promising, right? A new start. The problem is we have a close connection. The same humanity got carried over into the new creation of sorts, partial new creation. And notice what happens. Go to chapter 9, verse 20. 
Chapter 9, verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. That's another Adamite connection. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Wow. So again, fruit is the issue. Fruit of the tree of knowledge. Again, fruit from the vineyard. And again, it's almost like right afterwards in the midst of this farming, caring for the land, the area the Lord's given him, that he again sins. And there's this another enigmatic scene here where something happens in, um, in Noah's drunkenness and uncovering himself inside his tent between him and his son Ham. It's not clear what it is, but what is clear is this whole category of nakedness and shame, right? That came out. That was the first evidence that something had gone wrong in Genesis chapter 3. That man eats the fruit and realizes he's naked and hides from God because of that. And notice the differences. Whereas he, he, Noah uncovers himself in verse 21. In verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But notice what they do. Rather than whatever he does, gawking at him or whatever it is that Ham does, Shem and Japheth, in verse 23, the other two sons, took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. Does it sound like God? God covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve, and they seemed to follow in his footsteps. So my point in drawing that out is that whatever was kind of going on in reality, Moses giving us interpretive clues as to what's significant about it. The significant thing is that um, Ham seems to be more serpentine, more like the serpent, whereas Shem and Japheth are more godlike in their reactions. And now notice what Noah says when he awakes. Verse 25. So he said, what does it say? Cursed be Canaan, right? So that same thing where he's now being identified with the seed of the serpent. But who was it? Who was, what's the name of the son of Noah who actually did that? Ham. So why does it say Canaan? He's the father of the Canaanites. So remember I told you it's important to understand the situation in which the book is being written? We're way back generations before when, it, when Moses is writing. Moses is writing, you know, more than 400 years later, as he is with Israel leaving Egypt, wandering and getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, wipe out the Canaanites, dispossess them and take their land. And I think it's not arbitrary. It's rooted in God's justice back here. So I think he's making the connection to this relevant descendant of Ham. But also notice that as we're starting over again, and we've got these three sons, clearly this, this seed of the woman isn't going to come through the line of Ham, because the son's been cursed. But notice it's clearly going to come through Shem, because of the blessing. Verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God, God enlarge uh, Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So we're kind of continuing to see how this falls out, that Shem is going to be the line through which this promise is passed. Now, chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 9, is basically a genealogy. 
that segmented genealogy, followed by the Tower of Babel. And essentially, these two parts, this genealogy and the Tower of Babel scene, explain how the earth was populated with many nations, but it also shows in the Tower of Babel the blatant, we could say, creature-orientedness of man. Even as they are in some sense building a tower, sort of taking dominion of the earth, they're doing it all to make a name for themselves. It's all turned in on themselves, not doing it to serve the Lord. All right, so I'm going to say about that section. Then, notice chapter 11, verse 10, through chapter 11, verse 26, is another section, and it's our second 10-member genealogy. So if the first one in chapter 5 took us from Adam to Noah, this one's going to take us from Noah to Abraham. You guys tracking so far? So we're going to fast track now with this linear 10-member genealogy to Abraham. And it's essentially tracing the line of the promised deliverer, the seed of the woman, now from Noah to Abram, or Abraham. I'll just call him Abraham for ease. And now we come to what is really a very important section, and that is chapter 11, verse 27, all the way through 2511. This all falls under the generations of Terah. So the promises and hope for redemption and restoration that we've seen throughout chapters 3 through 11 are now kind of gathered up and embodied in the promises to Abraham, such that God's promises to Abraham become the hope of the world, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Everything else in salvation history is ultimately rooted in these promises to Abraham. So I'm going to take, basically I'm going to take some of our time, almost the rest of our time, just to elaborate this, these promises to Abraham, and then the rest of the book of Genesis is really devoted just simply to showing how these promises are passed on to subsequent generations, to Isaac and to Jacob. Um, They're elaborated a bit. They're threatened sometimes, and God preserves them. And also we see some partial fulfillment of them. But for now, I'm just going to take some time to elaborate these promises. So the promises to Abraham are so central to the rest of the book that everything following this finds its purpose in relation to these promises. Look at chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And if you have your notes there, you should see a color-coded section. It's got, it starts with blue and then has red. Do you guys all see that? Okay. This is my attempt to make simple some complex discussions about how this section flows and how each line relates to another, but to show you what is kind of assured and clear. So just look at that, your handout there. That's probably the easiest thing to look at. And you see Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It starts with this command. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land I will show you. That's what the Lord says to Abram. And then he says, in blue, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Notice all of those are related to Abraham and his descendants, right? going to be a great nation. It's basically a promise of greatness and blessing for Abraham. 
Then as we move into this pinkish-reddish section, we're going to see that now it's going to turn outward, looking to others besides Abraham. So that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And then the dark red is showing kind of the ultimate goal of all of this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see in the blue that God's going to bless Abraham and his descendants, make him a great nation, in order that, moving into the red, others may be blessed through Abraham with the ultimate goal that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. And that's God's purpose, basically, now, to restore his creation purposes, all channeled now through Abraham. Um, And these... In the blue section there, the promise to make you a great nation, to bless you, and to make your name great, is those exact words don't occur too often in the rest of Genesis as the promise is repeated. But what we find is that usually like that, that whole category is filled out with descendants, a multitude of descendants, and land. Land is promised. Which that all makes sense, right? If you're going to have a great nation, you've got to have some descendants, <laughs> And you need land for those descendants to live in. And so I think that those other promises that we see kind of getting more focus are just details of the great nation that's promised here. But now let's start working, continue to work through a bit. But before we move on, I'm noticing I still have a a table here. Do you guys all, yeah, you can see that on that same page, the bottom half of that same page. With these promises, I want you to see how these promises to Abraham in some ways present him as a bit of a new Adam, kind of following in the heels of Noah, who was in the same line, and yet they're, they're aimed at restoring God's purposes in creation and overcoming the threats bound up in the punishments for man's sin. So notice along that left-hand column, in bold, you have kind of the category, land, descendants, blessing. Across the top, you have the different stages. First, like Genesis 1 and 2, Adam or God's creation purpose. Then in the middle, the threat because of sin. Think of like Genesis 3. And then on the right, Abraham. Think of the promises now being given to Abraham. You guys track with me? Is it clear what I'm doing with this table? Okay. Let's look at land first and work from left to right. So on the left side, Adam is placed in a garden to work it and to keep it. Move on through to the threat because of sin. Man is exiled from the garden in the it a curse is put on the ground. Um, but then on the far right, Abraham, Abraham is promised a land and it's later promised to be a fruitful land, right? Flowing with milk and honey. So just like Adam is placed in a garden to care for it, from which, well, I'll get to the blessings in a moment, but from which that garden, he's going to bless the whole earth. So now Abraham is put into a land where he's going to enjoy blessings and spread those blessings out for all nations. Move on down to descendants. Just like Adam is given the blessing commission of being fruitful and multiplying, go to the far right, Abraham is promised a multitude of descendants. And then going back to the middle, that's overcoming the difficulty in conception and childbirth. And then go down to the blessing. Just like Adam was to extend the blessings of the garden to the whole earth, go to the far right, Abraham is promised that all nations will be blessed through him and his seed. And then in terms of the threat that's overcome there, clearly that's overcoming the exile. 
Because the exile from the garden keeps man from being able to extend outward the blessings found in the garden. And also, all the other consequences are sort of subsumed under blessing. Like, it's they're, they're in conflict with blessing. And so those will all be addressed as all nations are blessed. All right. I'm just quickly looking ahead and seeing what we want to wrap up here. So this promise in chapter 12 continues to be reaffirmed to Abraham and then even beyond that to his descendants, to Isaac and Jacob. Now here it's simply a promise. Beginning with chapter 15, we find a covenant, right? We think of the Abrahamic covenant. We don't actually see a covenant made here. But this is helpful to think about. What is the relationship between a promise and a covenant? Well, really a covenant is just making a promise more solemn by swearing an oath. Does that make sense? So a covenant is simply making a promise more solemn by swearing an oath. I can promise you I'll buy you dinner, and then if you doubt me, I could say, I swear I'll do it, right? I'm simply making that more solemn. Now you might take me a bit more seriously. You might also point me to some words of Jesus about letting your yes be yes, but um, you get the point, though. That's what a covenant does. So it's really not that there's a big difference here. It's just that, go and turn to chapter 15. I'll illustrate this for you. It's that it's making it more certain. So in chapter 15, we find the first time, the beginning of this covenant being created. And first, in this dialogue between God and Abraham, it relates to descendants. You'll see that God says in verse 1, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. So first we see the promise about a multitude of descendants. And Abraham believes, right? No issue. But now notice verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But now Abram says, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? We see some doubt being introduced here. And then what happens? He says, verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And it goes on and talks about this covenant-creating ceremony, right? So God says, okay, you're struggling with this one, this land one. Let me make a covenant. And basically, if you flip over, well, in my Bible, flip over, go to page 18 of chapter 15, and you see the essence of the covenant. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So within that covenant there, we're seeing basically the promise of descendants, the promise of land, and God's guaranteeing he will do that. 
One thing that's very significant here about chapter 15 and the covenant there is that God alone makes promises. It's not really a a bilateral agreement. God alone says, I'm going to do this for you, Abraham. And even as he makes the covenant, the types of things that the parts where the participants would usually both do it, God alone does it. So what I want to draw out here is there's a there's a complexity to thinking through the conditionality of the Abrahamic covenant. What I mean by that is, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Well, I think either of those terms simply stated are too simplistic because there's clearly certain conditional elements. But chapter 15 shows us that whatever happens, God is going to stick to this promise to fulfill it at some point, right? He's going to make sure it's fulfilled at some point. He's not going to give up on it. Now, Who inherits those promises? Who partakes in the fulfillment? That's going to be dependent upon their obedience. But God's never going to say, this generation's not faithful, and just, I give up on the Abrahamic promise altogether. Okay? Well, as we go into Exodus, this is all building on this. So we'll have time to kind of draw this out. Um, I really am aware of the time and wrapping this up. Go to chapter 17. And here we see in chapter 17, verse 2, God says now again to Abram, kind of building on and continuing to clarify and add more detail to the covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. That's sort of the summary. Then Abram falls on his face and God talks to him saying, and now we get some more details. As for me, God says, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. So this seems to be related to this blessing to all nations, to all families. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then he goes on and says, the sign for this should be circumcision. And notice verse 14 of chapter 17. This is going to make the point I just made about conditionality. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So notice, did God say, done with this promise. I'm not going to ever fulfill it. No, but that person who doesn't follow God's instructions won't be a part of God's people and partake of the fulfillment of these promises. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you look at your handout, you should see, I'm not sure exactly which page it's on. Do you have your handout there? Yeah, it should be at the top of page nine a basic summary of the promises to Abraham. And you'll notice the first two and the last are pure black. The ones in between are gray. Can you guys see that? 
And those are the main ones. Multitude of descendants, land, and at the end, blessing for all nations through Abraham and his seed are sort of the main promises. And in between are ones that often aren't put in summary lists of the promises to Abraham, but they come up quite often. Um, Yahweh will be their God and they will be his people as a regular one. And particularly as the Abrahamic covenant moves on into the Sinaitic covenant or the Mosaic covenant, we're going to see that one come up often. Kings will come from Abraham and a particular seed of Abraham will conquer his enemies, conquer the enemies uh, of the great nation, Abraham's great nation. Those are other ones. So that's sort of the summary um, of the promises. And if we had time, we would keep working through the major texts where God keeps reiterating this, and we would kind of have a chance to cement this and really see what's being promised. We don't have time for that, but you at least have a summary there. And what I would encourage you to do is sometime this week, go on through those the rest of the sections of the book, and I've at least put a summary there for you, and read that summary. Um, if you're able also to read the corresponding portion in Genesis and then read the summary, maybe that will help you. I'm sure that would help you if you have time to do that. Um, but the fact that we at least covered leading up to Abraham and the significant role of the Abrahamic promise, I think really establishes some foundational things. Because like I said, the rest of Genesis is really just reinforcing those promises to kind of restore God's purpose at creation and fulfill it through Abraham and these promises. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for this time and this opportunity to look at your word. And we just pray that you would help us to understand it rightly. Um, even as I have um, left us with uh, a lot of uncovered ground, I do pray, Lord, that as they look at the book of Genesis and look at this handout, that you would help them to put the pieces together and better understand Genesis. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue on in Exodus through Deuteronomy, um, that we will have just enough time to be able to continue to unpack this and understand the, the flow of the storyline as it continues through these next four books. Uh, we do thank you for your mercy and your grace if we, as we've seen it in the book. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, um, that we would be dependent upon you and therefore able to be useful to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.